0: Welcome to this episode of the Business of Practice podcast, where we focus on the physical, financial, and human sides of equine veterinary medicine. In this episode, we're talking about, should I sell my practice with Dr. Mike Pownell. I'm your host, Kim Brown, publisher of Equimanagement. Management. Dr. Pownell is a DBM MBA and a partner in McKee Pownell Equine Services in Canada. He's also a partner in Oculus Insights. That company is focused on helping veterinarians and other members of the animal health care industry improve their businesses. Thank you, Dr. Powell, for joining us today to talk about selling your practice.
1: Always a pleasure. And this is a subject I can get, I, I, I always get very excited about. So I'm looking forward to the discussion.
0: I think this is going to be a really important topic to a lot of people out there in the equine veterinary industry, because there are a lot of corporate entities investing in equine practices today. And then in addition, there's consolidation of practices in different regions of the country. And a lot of veterinarians are really just not sure what the right direction is for a practice that he or she has worked really hard to develop. So what do you recommend, Dr. Pownell, on planning? Let's say you're you're planning to retire in, in the next five years or 10 years. How do you prepare for the sale of your practice?
1: Yeah, so I think that's a great way to start, and I think it really depends on your stage of career. So if all of a sudden you're, let's just say, for example, you're 65 and you're like, I've had it, I want out. Uh, That's one factor Um, versus, uh, you know, I got about five to seven years left in me how do I prepare myself? And, you know, the answer to the first one is, you know, if you've got a good practice and, you know, the corporate consolidators are looking at, at practices, maybe three plus uh, plus person practices, the way the market's going right now, you'll be able to sell that in no problem at all. The bigger challenge is, is all right. I, I, I know I've, I know my, the end of my career is, is coming soon. What do I want to do? And and Whether you're gonna sell it to a consolidator or sell it to a colleague, um, the same principles apply. Anybody buying a practice is gonna buy it measuring um, cash flow. And the barometer they're looking at for cash flow is your EBITDA, your earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization, which is, you know, so, it, it's what you get from your bookkeeper every month or every quarter, and it's your profit before all of those other expenses. What anybody buying, whether it's a veterinary practice or um, buying a big corporation, all people want is an assurance of r- the cash flow coming ahead. So uh, a big factor in that is, A, you've got cash flow, and we can talk about what you do to maximize cash flow but the other thing that people are looking at what is the risk involved in buying this practice so if it's a practice let's call it a let's call it a three vet practice but one of the vets is you know it, it's the it's the name it's the name on the practice um, that personality drives most of the business that's a riskier business because once that person leaves Do the clientele stay with the practice or do they say, oh, you know, I had a great relation with Dr. So and so now that they've retired or left the practice, you know, I'm going to go see what the market looks like and and find others as opposed to another practice where it has, you know, three or four plus vets um, and people recognize the value or the brand, the reputation of the practice. That's far less riskier because the estimated cash flows in the future probably are more secure. So this is why uh, companion animal practices often sell for more than an equivalently profitable equine practice because there's less of the, I hate to say it, it, there's less of, but in equine practice, we're more relationship driven. We've had long-term relationships with people. I mean, we're the only professionals that see our clients in their in their pajamas sometimes when we're out there late at night for a colic. And, and, you know, we're there with the lifespan of horse, of a horse and horses. So we can be a person for 30 plus years as a client. Uh, so people really stick to the veterinarian as opposed to a companion animal practice. Well, they're on my way to work. They do a great job. Uh, I can drop off my dog on the way in, pick him up on my way, way home. Um, and I'm, you know, it's easier to transition that. So those are the two things that we want to look at: is cash flow and risk, because you have cash flow. And so let's say I know uh, uh, John Chalk presented at the AP, I think four or five years ago, on a survey on profitability of the practices that he has in his group. So he did thirty practices, and the average EBITDA was about twelve and a half percent of revenue. So that means if you had a million dollars in sales, your EBITDA would be 112,500. And what um, people will do, one of the most common ways of valuing that practice is they'll use a multiple of that. So the higher the multiple, the lower the risk. So if let's say you're a one vet, let's say one vet racetrack practice, Or, you know, a sport horse practice that when you retired, your clients would go elsewhere, the risk is high. So maybe you get a one multiple, whereas if you're a multi-vet practice that's been around for years and people just recognize it and you have vets that will be staying on with the transition, you'll have a higher multiple. Um, Traditionally, before the consolidators or the corporate groups came in, that would be about four to six. So you're, you know, that $112,500 times five, you know, you're closer to $600,000 for the value of that practice.
0: Okay. And you said that you could talk to us a little bit about cash flow and how to help that.
1: Yeah. So couple of things we want to look at. So when somebody comes in to buy a a practice, they're going to want to look at typically three years, previous years, financial, and they're going to average that out because they want to look at trends. And so, um, sort of like us trying to buy a used anything, we're looking at reliability. We're sort of looking at, you know, what are the expectations that, you know, let's say there every year there's a, uh, overall, there's been a 4% increase in revenue. And if every year you do that, you have a fairly good assurance that the next few years we'll see that kind of increase. Whereas if one year it's up 9% and the next year it's down 5% and the next year it's up 3%, you're like, oh, that's all over the place. It's a bit of a yo-yo. So uh, wh- what we all like is um, when we're look- looking at risk is consistency, so uh, if you're planning and you're so let's say you're in your fifties and you're like, I'm gonna pra- I'm gonna retire in five to seven years, that's great insight to have because you can really prepare your practice uh, financially for the sale. And we can talk about how do you mitigate risk later on. But financially, you can you know make it look better. So, all right, what I need to do? I need to grow my revenue consistently. Uh, the next thing I do is how do I improve my profitability? Maybe your EBITDA is ten percent. So what does it take to get it to 15%? Um, And so then it's like, okay, let's look at our inventory. Are we buying what we need or are we buying too much? Uh, The more money that we have tied up in inventory, the less profit we're going to have because a lot of that stuff's just sitting on the shelves. The one thing we need to be clear on because somebody who's coming in to buy a practice will do what's called normalizing it. They're going to look at, what would a a regular practice uh, pay for certain expenses? And that could be wages. So you may have a family member on the payroll to, you know, tax splitting. That's, you know, an advantage of being a small business owner. That's fine, but they're going to normalize it, which usually means more profit for you. If you're paying yourself an extravagant salary. So this is where a lot of vets get confused is they just say, well, I want to take as much money out of my business, so... um, You know, I'm going to pay myself three times the going rate. Well, they're going to normalize that too. So again, that's your advantage because that's putting more money in. So let's say the average salary in your area is $100,000 and you're paying yourself $300,000. Well, they're going to say, you know what, to replace you, we're going to need $100,000 salary. Uh, So we're going to add $200,000 back into your profit, which is good because the more you can show profit, the more you're worth. But what if you're underpaying people? And so maybe you're underpaying your support staff compared to equivalents in the area. And they're gonna look at, there's a good chance they're gonna look like a painted animal too. So if you're technicians for whatever reason you're, and I'm just making up numbers, just you know, right. we all live in different areas and so it's all gonna be different. So if you're paying a, a, tech, a vet assistant $15 an hour, and small animal practices in the area are paying eighteen dollars an hour, for example. So that three-hour-a-dollar difference, they're going to adjust it. Bit of money's coming out of your profitability because they, you know, they want to pay people the going rate. The big thing we got to look at, though, is is when we take payments in cash. So if you're income splitting or there's some deviation in salaries, there's a paper trail that you can say hey i know i pay too much i'm paying myself too much or i'm not paying somebody else enough we can explain that it's it's above board it's how you file your taxes it's all legitimate but when you're receiving cash so let's say um over a year you're taking about ten thousand dollars a month of cash you've got old friends or they're gonna barter with you or what have you well, you can't say to somebody who's going to buy your practice, "Oh yeah, but I get about ten thousand dollars a year in cash." And they're going to like prove it to me, and yeah. you have no proof. And so, how I look at it is, for every dollar you're taking in cash, you know, let's say your your multiple is five. Well, for every dollar you're taking in cash, five dollar you're you're reducing the value of your practice by five dollars. So, if you're taking in ten thousand a year in cash, that's about fifty thousand dollars less than your practice is actually work, worth. So if you're saying, all right, I want to be selling my practice in a few years, you got to stop with the cash or yeah. realize it's going to diminish the value of your practice and you can't go to anybody and say, but honest, it's there because you can't prove it. And there's no guarantee it'll con- you know continue afterwards. So cash is the, is the, is the big factor, but really whatever I can do to increase my profitability. So let's say we're that million dollar practice and you have 10% profitability, so that's $100,000 a year, and um, your multiple is five, so your practice is worth 500,000. But what if you got your profitability up to 15%, like really, you know, grew your practice every year, like three or 4%, and you got your profitability to 15%. So let's say in, you know, five years, your practice is billing 1.5 million, and your profitability is 15%. I don't have the math right in front of my head. I can probably pull my phone up and pull it off, but it's worth a lot more than 500,000. It's worth a boatload more than 500,000. So putting that kind of effort into it, it's gonna pay dividends uh, over the long run. So I just figured it out. So if in five years you got your practice up to one and a half billion in sales and your profitability is 15%, your practice is then worth about one and a quarter million, or wow. six hundred twenty-five thousand more than if you sold it now with the profitability that you have. So that kind of effort, those little bits, will add up over time. That you know, it's going to increase the value considerably.
0: And that's a that's a chunk of change. So that is a big is chunk of change. To really investigate and and if you don't understand that as a practice owner then you can talk to your uh, accountant or CPA and, and Absolutely. figure that out. Okay, so let's go to a different type. I know a lot of areas they're having consolidation of practices. And some veterinarians don't think about that, maybe until somebody comes and says, hey, I want to buy your practice. I've bought two other practices. Or you see somebody that maybe is getting close to the end of their career and you may be interested in that that territory and those clients fit in with yours so how do you look at that how do you think about that to prepare
1: so uh, one of the things you know this sounds really callous and cold-hearted but often if you've got a friend or you know somebody that you've been working in the area and you know they're a good practitioner the good standard of medicine what have you um this is the cold truth sometimes um, it's cheaper just to sort of hope you can you can acquire the clients afterwards, because when a single practitioner is there's not a lot of client loyalty. So when they hang up their hat, they're going to disperse elsewhere. Uh, so that's that's the you know pretty ruthless way of doing it. Another way of doing it, you know, a smaller practice is. Maybe have a uh, a formula where you can buy the practice based on the production. So based on transferring the clientele to you. So let's say in year one, you may say, I'll pay you 10% of gross revenue uh, that we collect. All is collected because you're not going to pay for people that don't want to pay your bills. Right, and then maybe year two we're going to do eight percent in year three six percent, and these are just approximations. Right. So basically, what it does it incentivizes the retiring vet to transition their clients over to your practice, um, and they're compensated for it. And yeah. you, as a practice, you know the one that's acquiring it, you're decreasing your risk because. Um, there's no, you know, because you're only going to be paying for what you, you get from that client, from that vet, as opposed to agreeing on a sum, paying it. And then after the transactions happen and this vet retires, the clients disperse and you're like, wow, I just paid a lot of money and I got nothing in return. So that's right. a great way of, bal- you know, making sure the person who's selling it is getting some value to their practice, other than just shutting the door and you, as the person that's buying it, it instills a bit of security into what you're getting.
0: Yeah. And then the one that everyone hears about so much, corporate options.
1: Yeah. So just, just before we jump into corporate, I just wanted to say one last thing. Okay. Um, um I did a panel on new collaborative business models at the AP. And it was a virtual session because not all of us could attend the AP. So anybody who's listening to that who had signed up for the AP, I'm fairly certain you'll be able to go back and look at it. And We've got a bunch of practitioners in that who haven't sold their practices, but are working collaboratively with other practices in their area. And so whether it's, you know, developing a management company that will take care of helping marketing or client education or paying for insurance, what have you, uh, versus, you know, a group of practices all buying stakes in each other and there's a big, uh, hub-and-spoke model, so maybe there's a surgical practice, referral hospital in the middle, and all the other smaller practices on the periphery of that sort of join up with that. So it incentivizes them to uh, refer work to the big hospital because you own a share of that, uh, and yet the big hospital is supporting you as a smaller practice. And so there's a lot of great collaborative models that doesn't necessarily mean you have to sell, um, but you can have some of the efficiencies of a larger practice while still remaining small and veterinary owned.
0: Well, that's that's good. We'll have to make sure that we put a uh, a note in the article that people hear it. And we may have to have you back after uh, the first of the year to talk about that a little bit and see what, what people are there. So, okay, now let's jump into corporate because so yeah. many people hear about that.
1: That is such a buzzword. And so a lot of what I'm gonna talk about is based upon what I have learned from what's gone on in Europe because the consolidators, the corporate consolidators have been much more active in the equine market in Europe than they have been in North America. they have just over the last year, really started to get aggressive here. So the corporate groups, um, they've been buying up small animals left, right and center for a number of years. And the amount of good small animal practices that fit their criteria for acquisition are, are not many left. So now they're looking. Okay, where else can we spend money? What else can we buy? And again, they're buying cash flow, um, and they're looking at equine practices. And it's like, hey, these these practices turn off a lot of cash flow. They're you know some of these are bigger practices that we're talking maybe millions a year. So the thing we have to understand about these corporate consolidators, they're usually private equity groups. What private equity groups do is they'll um, accumulate a fund of money from investors, and they're usually institutional ret- investors like retirement or pension plans uh, insurance companies um, people that want um, some stability and they're allowed now to invest a certain amount like these these established uh, uh, institutional investors into high risk, Uh, investments. It doesn't have to all be blue chip, you know, very safe investments. So now they're putting a portion of their money into private equity and private equity will go out and they will accumulate a bunch of practices. Their premise though, they usually only have about a four to six year lifespan. And that is we're going to accumulate these practices and then we're going to sell them to a bigger fish down the road. And that bigger fish is going to pay us a higher multiple. So This is why we're seeing multiples or the value of of practices uh, rise so much recently because there's a bit of a feeding frenzy. There's a few groups. They're all competing with each other. And competition is great because it it increases prices to the people that are going to benefit from it to the vet practices. So instead of paying four to six times multiple or four to six times profit, now we're seeing numbers like eight, 10, 12 times. And so the goal is then to put all these practices together. We're going to accumulate, you know, like, let's say 20 equine practices, and then we're going to flip them to a bigger group. And let's hope they're going to pay us 20, you know, maybe double what we paid. Mm -hmm. And so everybody works out well. So it's a a bit of a, it's always predicated that somebody bigger will be buying it or adding value to it. Now, that being said, uh, in the small animal world, There are people like mars and um, who are buying a lot of practices they're a private company and they're not in the business of flipping it in four to six years they see it as fitting into a larger portfolio because mars also owns one of the biggest pet food companies in the world Um, they also owned uh, equipment manufacturers digital imaging equipment and they own labs and so it all sort of fits in together for what they're doing but By and large, those who are out there in the equine world buying practices are looking to sell somewhere else. The challenge with equine is, is, as a practice owner, if you're concerned about legacy and what have you, that's really not certain. Because their goal, the private equity people, their goal is to maximize money for their investors. You know, so like we would go to like we don't want to say to a client when they say, "Well, you fix the lameness of my horse, will you guarantee it'll be sound?" Of course not. But financial people are guaranteeing to their investors, "You put X amount in, you're going to get this return." That's their reputation, and if they don't want to, you know, tarnish reputation because they're not going to be able to go back to these same people later to say, "Hey." Let's get some more money for something else or going to new investors because if the word gets around that they don't deliver they're not going to get anything and they're out of business right so this is where i'm concerned about the the private equity model in or in the corporate groups buying veterinary practices because as veterinarians our goal is we're you know we want to take care of animals our clients yes we want to make money but it's not the only thing you know we're, we're here because we like healing animals we're helping our pets and our community. Whereas the private equity groups, corporate groups, um, their major goal is to make money. At some point, you know, you can see where there's going to be conflict. You know, you want to buy a new piece of equipment for your practice, or you want to invest into something and they, you know, your new bosses, owners are going to say, you know, I don't think so. Um, I worry that that may interfere with the kind of uh, returns we're going to get. So, a note yeah. of caution there. They're not all like that, but a note of caution.
0: Well, and is there anything else that you wanted to touch on as we're talking about? And I realize there's books and, and seminars that last multiple days that cover this topic, yeah. but is there anything else just that you would like to mention? I think the
1: main thing in what will increase the value of your practice as much as anything else is minimizing the risk involved with it. So if you're a three vet practice or for vet practice, and you're going to sell to somebody else. Don't have one vet or two vets being the bulk of the billing. Like spread the wealth around. Make sure other people are your younger vets are are doing it. Um, make sure that you know you have consistent revenue growth, consistent um, uh, profitability. Because again, fluctuations nobody likes fluctuations. That that gives uncertainty. Um, having um, loyal clients maybe you get involved in having a net promoter score which is a you know a factor of 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 uh, a customer survey if you can tell somebody hey we have an average net promoter score of let's call it 80 for discussion's sake then you can demonstrate that you know what this is you know we got consistent loyal clients that the odds are they're going to stay with the practice afterwards so yeah, increase your profitability, um, uh, minimize the risk for any new uh, buyer. And, and the last thing I want to say is no um, no matter who's going to buy you, odds are they're going to want the selling owners to stay on for a couple of years to ease the transition. And let's say you're just for to make things simple, uh, your practice was worth a million. What they typically will do is say, here's Seventy-five percent up front. Here's seven hundred and fifty now. You'll get your other two hundred and fifty thousand in two years if we meet these goals, because that's the carrot they're going to dangle to make sure that their investment uh, is more secure.
0: Uh, that's that's a good point to bring up. Okay, well, thank you very much, Dr. Powner, for joining us today, and thank you for listening to the Business of Practice podcast. We invite you to visit equimanagement.com or your favorite podcast network to hear each episode of the Business of Practice. And if you have any questions or suggestions, you can send an email to me at kbrown at com. The Business of Practice podcast is a production of the Equine Podcast Network, an entity of Equine Network, LLC.